Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Murder Chronicles. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. You have nothing left to lose. And he said, and that's the scariest type of person is a mother that has nothing left to lose. You're, you're a threat and they're going to kill you. You're listening to episode 54, Mystery on Jurgen's Road. 19-year-old Jason Fox was having a rough go of it. He'd recently been kicked out of a friend's place where he'd been staying in his hometown of Newport, Washington. But he could always count on his Aunt Jennifer. She lived nearby, and though they'd had issues in the past, he asked her if he could come stay with her. She said yes, temporarily. The night of September 14th, 2020, it was chilly outside, and it was around 11.30 that night when Jason quietly knocked on his aunt's bedroom door. She was almost asleep, but her boyfriend, Angel, was still awake as Jason popped his head in. He told them that he was leaving the house for a bit, that he was going to give his friend Claude, or CL as he was called, a ride. Jason left the house that night, not mentioning that he was going out for more than just giving CL a ride. CL had invited him to hang out too. He also didn't mention to his aunt that he was a little worried about the prospect of other people being around where CL was staying. He didn't sugarcoat that concern in a message. Where's your place? And is it for real, not Riley? He was speaking about a former friend that he'd had a falling out with, who he was terrified of. He continued, like, I for real want to kick it. I just ain't down for drama. We'll get to the history with Riley in a bit. But for now, CL was able to assuage Jason's fears by responding, bro, that's why I'm where I'm at, because I don't like that shit around me. A short time later, Jason would message CL back saying, you ready for me to head out? There were several calls from CL to Jason after that. And Jennifer, still halfway asleep, would remember hearing the car door slam outside the house. She believed it was Jason, and he was heading out for the night. But not long after, at 12.06 in the morning, it was now September 15th, Jason would send one final message to Angel, Jennifer's boyfriend. He said, quote, 22 Jurgens Road, just in case anything happens to me. Why did he feel the need to send that cryptic text? And if he was scared, why did he still go? Those questions would remain unanswered in those early morning hours as Jennifer and Angel went to sleep. But the next day, when Jennifer woke up and found that Jason wasn't home, his silver Ford Fiesta wasn't parked outside the house. She wasn't really concerned. I mean, he was an adult and also known for being gone for days at a time. So it wasn't unusual that he wasn't there. But as the day wore on and Jason wasn't responding to her messages, a worry started to rise in the back of her mind. It just wasn't like Jason to not respond to messages. He was always hooked to his phone. The concern deepened when Angel shared the message from Jason, the one that he'd sent just after midnight, saying, 22 Jurgens Road, just in case anything happens to me. If he was just giving a friend a ride, why would he write that? Jennifer would reach out to Jason's parents, Pepper and Michael, who had long been divorced. Neither of them had heard from their son. Honestly, my first thought was that he probably was just 
squabbling with Jennifer again. I mean, he has, he goes dark for a day or two. I mean, he's done that before. But every time I call him and leave a message or send a text, you know, get in touch with me, he always got right back in touch with us. Yeah, you know, this time it, it didn't. So initially that night, I wasn't real concerned about it. And even through part of the next day, we weren't real worried, you know. Michael would ask Jennifer to file a missing persons report, which she did on September 16th. And a Newport police officer was assigned to the case right away, and he drove out to Jennifer's place. She told the officer about the cryptic message, how even though it wasn't unusual for him to be out of touch for days, this felt different because his phone had been shut off for two days and no one had talked to him or seen his silver Ford Fiesta. Jennifer would explain to the officer who actually knew Jason, that she'd recently helped him through a home detox. Jason had struggled with drug addiction and was desperately trying to get clean. He wanted to get his life back on track. But in the days following his return to staying at her place, she started seeing the signs that, despite his best efforts, he seemed to be slipping back into addiction. Life in Newport wasn't easy for Jason. It never had been. Newport is a city with small-town vibes, With a population of just over 2,200 people, the city is located on the Washington-Idaho border just west of the Pondore River. It's less than an hour from Spokane, which is the biggest city in the area. Newport is well known as a tourist town. Travelers are attracted to the scenic landscape, mountains, pristine rivers, and a wilderness rich with wildlife. Jason's parents, Michael and Pepper, would get divorced. When he was four, his brother was five, and his sister was six. The divorce had been hard on everybody. Michael would stay in Newport with the kids, while Pepper moved five hours away to Seattle. Throughout Jason's childhood, he went long periods of time without seeing his mother. Michael would remarry a woman named Susan, who would help raise the children. But the fallout between Pepper and Michael had left its mark, a rift that would deepen over time. So did the hurt feelings. However, one thing Pepper and Michael both agreed on was how very conservative Newport was. According to them, it was not an easy place for a teen to come out as LGBTQ. Before Jason's senior year in high school, he would move to Seattle to live with his mom, Pepper. He wanted to get out of Newport. He loved animals. He, he just wanted to belong. He, he loved uh, listening to elderly people's stories. Um, he connected with with elderly. He was really good with art. He, he loved painting and, and drawing. I didn't know until he came to live with me and, uh, you know, we, we started, I hadn't seen him for about four years. And uh, when when he came to live with me, it was the best thing. Uh, it, was a, it, it was the best thing for both of us. You know, um, he came for spring break, break the year before and he enjoyed himself so much that when he when he went to get back on the plane, he said, Mama, I don't want to go home. He said, I want to come live with you. And I said, please, you know, come 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 live with me. You know, we'll have a good time. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to know each other. And, and it was great. Jason was excited to reconnect with his mom, but he still struggled. He told me school was fine. And I kept asking him, I said, how, how are you doing, honey? And, and, and he said, oh, I'm, I'm doing all right. And then third semester, he comes to me and he says, Mom, I'm in trouble. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he said, well, I'm, I'm failing everything. And I said, you told me you were doing fine. What are you talking about? He said, well, and he, he could talk the birds out of the sky. Oh, he was a smooth talker. Very, very, oh, he could have gotten whatever he wanted. I, I, he could sell, I said, Eskimos. He said, Mom, what they are, what I was doing my junior year in Newport, they were doing in the eighth grade here. He said, it, it's four years advanced on, on 
I don't even know what's going on in class. And he said, I, I'm, I've, I've been lost since the first day. And I, and I said, damn it. You, why didn't you tell me sooner? Because I, I, I had a tutor all set up. We, we could have fixed this. And he I said, how, how have you been able to pass and be in your report cards? And he said, I've been able to talk my way from F's to A's and B's with my teachers. Of course, there were some growing pains in the relationship between Pepper and Jason as they got to know each other. But at the end of the day, the time they spent together was healing for them both. He said, Mom, I'm, I'm gay. And I said, I know. And I said, so? And, and he said, well, it doesn't, it doesn't bother you? And I said, no, if we were all the same, it, it would be boring. And the heart loves what the heart loves. You don't have really any control over what your heart wants. So, no, why, why would I have a problem with that, you know? But life in Seattle wasn't everything he'd hoped it would be. He missed his friends and family. Those comfortable ties in Newport pulled him back home. He missed his friends. I, I tried telling him, but I knew he had to learn on his own. He kept running after his dad's approval and his older brother's approval. And um, I kept telling him, I said, honey, I didn't learn this until I was 35 with my mother. So let me save you a bunch of years. I said, I see it just to the T. You're, you're running after relationships that you want to repair. When he returned to Newport, Jason's dad, Mike, would help him enroll in an alternative high school where he earned his diploma. He was uh, he was a great kid. Yeah, he was always um, real gregarious. You know, I mean, he always he always talked to people. He, you know, he always did like the plays at school. He tried sports, he, you know, he was a real loving kid. You know, I mean, he, he really was. And he, you know, he was he was a lot of fun to be around, you know. I mean, towards the end, it started to turn dark because, you know, meth, meth fucks people up. It's it's the Antichrist. So there were times at the end where he was, you know, much darker than he had been in the past. But he was he was a great kid. He was always, you know, fun to be around. A turning point in Jason's young life was when someone offered him meth. Newport, like many small communities, wasn't immune to the influx of drugs. Here's Michael and his wife, Susan. Newport, here recently, it's become kind of a darker place. I mean, we've got, you know, a couple of, you know, missing people and, you know, some stuff like that. But there has always been a huge meth problem. I mean, always. In the same since, since houses I've been when I yeah. was a kid and I grew up here. It's yeah. always been the same places and they're still running them. It's like, don't know why. Everybody knows, but nothing has ever been done. When Michael found out that his son was using meth, he was beyond upset. He had a zero tolerance policy in his home when it came to drugs. Jason made the choice to leave home and he started doing some couch surfing with friends. In between, he worked odd jobs and as a waiter. And it was around this time that he started hanging out with a new set of friends who were a little bit older than he was. These included Matt Raditz Freeman, Riley Hillstad, Claude Merritt, or CL as he was called, and Kevin Belding. You'll want to remember these names. From around May to July 2020, Jason would stay at Matt and his girlfriend's place. CL would often stay there too. But that summer they had a falling out and Jason was asked to leave. In early September, Matt and his girlfriend with their children would move to the Timber River Ranch, the property at 22 Jurgens Road. By then, Riley, CL, and Kevin lived there too. The day after Jason was reported missing, on September 17th, 
The officer who had taken the missing persons report and a deputy from the Ponderay County Sheriff's Office would drive out to 22 Jurgens Road, which was about 14 minutes from where Jason had been living with his aunt. That area was under the jurisdiction of the Sheriff's Office. At what point did you start to feel like, I'm worried? When he for, didn't call to tell his dad yeah. he loved him for surgery? Yeah, that, well, that was that was one thing. You know, we knew we knew something was, was real wrong when Jason didn't show up for a surgery that, you know, I, I was having. He was real concerned about. But the next day, probably late morning, early afternoon, Robert got in touch with me and said, hey, you know, Mom's been sending me all these texts, you know, that Jason's dead and, you know, it's all over town, this kind of thing. And that's when I said, well, fuck this. And we, you know, we called the police and said, what the fuck is going on? You know, you're going to meet with us and I, I want to know. And it was at that point, they finally went and checked the address. Up until that point, they hadn't. So they waited, they waited 24 hours before they even bothered to check on my kid. Officers went down the private road of 22 Jurgens Road toward the Timber River Ranch, which was a beautiful oasis. The owners operated a wedding venue for people interested in barn and farm weddings. It was gorgeous. 54 acres of beautiful woodlands with a backdrop of 1,500 feet of Ponderay Riverfront. The property boasted three separate living quarters, a five-bedroom, three-and-a-half-bath farmhouse. There was a huge shop that had two bedrooms and three bathrooms. There was a one-bedroom guest cabin and several other outbuildings, along with a private boat dock. But you have to remember it's 2020, and COVID had shuttered the wedding venue business. Add to that, the owners of the property, Ken and Shannon, were in the midst of a messy divorce. Apparently that summer, Ken had allegedly started having all these folks on his property to help him run the ranch. But in early September, Ken was served papers by his wife to leave the property. According to an article in the Spokesman Review, Aaron Jones, who's the attorney representing Shannon, would say that a judge granted her full control over the ranch and ordered Ken to leave the property, which he did. But these other folks would stay behind. But Shannon didn't know anything about these people who Ken had supposedly hired. She got a big surprise when she and her attorney went to the Timber River Ranch on September 13th, a day before Jason went missing, to go over the place and conduct an inventory of the shared property, which was at stake in their divorce proceedings. According to Shannon's attorney, there were a group of people living on the property. In the main house, they found Matt and his girlfriend with their children and others. At the tiny house on the property, they knocked on the door. That's where Riley lived and he answered, allegedly armed with two pistols in his belt. During a brief conversation, Riley would tell them that he'd been given the authority to run the place from Ken. However, later, Ken's attorney would also speak to the spokesman review. He rejected the claim that Ken had left these men in control of the property. He would describe him as just another victim of these nefarious individuals, saying that since Ken hadn't been allowed on the property by the dissolution action, referring to the judge's order, that there'd been nothing to stop them from squatting on the property. According to Shannon Sheckler, which is Ken Sheckler's wife, they own the property. Mm -hmm. According to her, she had gone there two days before Jason was murdered. And Riley Hillstad pointed a gun at in her face. You know, I mean, she's on her property, you know, there and he's, you know, pulling guns on her. And nothing was I, done. yeah, why? nothing was done. I want to know why. Because if I come to my place and, you know, some fucking snot nosed kid pulls a gun on me, I'm calling the sheriff. So, yeah, it, you know, according to her, they, they weren't supposed to be there. It's unclear what the police knew about the owners of the property when they arrived at 22 Jurgens Road looking for Jason Fox. 
One thing is crystal clear, though. Jason wasn't there. And neither was his silver Ford Fiesta. They would find Riley, Matt, CL, and Matt's girlfriend, Amanda, who explained that they were residents at the ranch, hired by one of the owners to help them. Matt lived in the main house with Amanda and their children. Remember, about six months prior to Jason going missing, he had couch surfed at their place in Newport. Riley lived in a tiny house near the river, and CL lived in an apartment in the loft at that shop on the east side of the property. They all said that they hadn't seen Jason Fox that night. In the early morning hours of the 15th, Matt would say that Jason knew better than to come out to 22 Jurgens Road, and that he hadn't seen him in two months. Whereas CL, the guy who had, according to Jason's social media account, had invited him out to the ranch. He said that he hadn't seen Jason in a couple of weeks. Ultimately, the officers would drive away from 22 Jurgens Road. They didn't search the property, and no one was taken down to the station to be interviewed further. A few days later, police would interview a man named Kevin Belding, who they'd been told had been at 22 Jurgens Road on the night that Jason disappeared. But Kevin said he hadn't seen Jason for two to three weeks. In fact, he thought that he'd gone to Montana. In the following days after Jason's disappearance, there was a tremendous amount of talk around town and gossip on social media about the residents of 22 Jurgens Road, Riley, Matt, CL, and Kevin. There were rumors that someone else had tried to lure Jason out to 22 Jurgens Road before CL's invitation the night of the 14th. Apparently, Jason had been trying to buy drugs from a woman who was really good friends with Riley. Jason would offer up his Apple Watch as collateral. Here's Jason's mom, Pepper. And um, he said, well, yeah. He said, well, it, for some reason, my, my debit card's gone missing. You know, I'm, I've got my Apple Watch on me right now. Um, I would want to, I just wanted 20. And, and when my card comes in tomorrow, I will... Uh, I'll bring you your 20 bucks and I'll, I want my watch back. And, and she said, okay, that's fine. Good. You know, I can do that. So um, they, they made the exchange and she had not give him, given him drugs. She had given him salt. It didn't take long for Jason to realize that he'd been given salt instead of meth. He would send the woman a message saying that he wanted his watch back and the drugs, but she didn't respond. Then later, Jason had gotten that message from CL to come hang out with him. But knowing there was bad blood between him and Riley, he wanted to make sure that he wasn't going to be there. You have to remember Pepper was living five hours away in Seattle when she'd heard that Jason had gone missing, how he wasn't answering his phone, how he'd sent this worried message that he was concerned about running into Riley at 22 Jurgens Road. But she was actively monitoring what was going on in Newport through social media. And what she was seeing was troubling. I, I leave my life. I, I, I pack up the truck and I, I'm going to I'm off to find my son. Pepper would book a motel room in Newport. She lined the walls with pictures of her son and began her own personal investigation to find Jason. She had no bones about making it known that she would go to the ends of the earth to find her boy. You have nothing left to lose. And he said, and that's the scariest type of person is a mother that has nothing left to lose. Um, you're, you're a threat and they're going to kill you. I, uh, because, because I'd already started this hashtag, uh, justice for Jason. I, I start writing, you know, on these, on these, uh, um, uh, sandwich board signs, you know, hashtag justice for Jason Fox. Um, a few of them were, had information on them, so, you know, saying a, a 19 year old, uh, uh, missing, I grabbed up a picture of them offline and I made up some, uh, a thousand copies of, of posters um, of Jason saying any information, you know, please contact me or the city, uh, you know, Newport uh, Police Department or the Pondray County Sheriff's Department, you know, and um, I started posting up all over town, um, all over town, um, 
I, I went to Spokane, I, I, all the way to Spokane, every little one-stop shop, you know, every single gas station, I, I was posting them everywhere. When I was in Newport, you know, when the shops were open, I, I would walk around and I, I'd go inside each one of the shops and say, you know, put one of these up in your window and, and I explain what was going on. Pepper says from the moment she checked into that motel, she felt that her life was in danger because she was making waves, looking under every rock in the city, recording videos she'd post on social media as a way of putting people on notice. And, I, and, and this whole time that I've been in Newport, I've been uh, uh, threatened, beat down, um, uh, uh, scolded, told to shut up, uh, told to sit down. I've had my posters ripping down, uh, ripped down. I have people tell me, you know, uh, well, it's just one less gay person to worry about. You know, it's just a waste of space. It's like, no, no, you understand that that waste of space that you think is a waste of space or you think it's trash. That's my baby. And, and he's, he's, it doesn't matter who he loves. Investigators were tight-lipped, but the rumor mill was buzzing. Everyone had a theory as to what had happened to Jason, as word continued to spread about 22 Jurgens Road and what allegedly happened there that night. Jason had sent a text, you know, 22 Jurgens Road in case anything happens to me. Because he knew. I can look back at stuff that I've seen in his phone. He knew these fuckers were plotting something. You know, in some previous texts, he was uneasy. He knew they were plotting something. So then why would he go out there? Why do you think he went? Why did he go? Because he, he I don't know. He was a dumb kid. He wanted to yeah. be with his friends. He thought Riley wasn't there. He thought Matt was his friend. Because he lived at my house, you know, I'd say probably three weeks before he passed away. So he, he lived at my house for about a week. And he went outside, had a phone call for a couple hours. I don't know who it was with. I'm pretty sure it was with Jen because I walked out and heard a woman and didn't sound like Susan. And then the next thing I know is two days later, he comes up to me and he says, dude, I feel like I'm impeding on your house. And I said, you're really not. You're welcome to stay here. And he ended up going back. So he wanted to fit in. He wanted to hang out with friends. He was a very social person. On September 21st, the Newport police got the report back on the emergency ping they'd conducted on Jason's phone. The last time his phone was on was at 12.18 a.m. near 22 Jurgens Road. Investigators would go speak to the residents at 22 Jurgens Road, and this time they would say that Jason had been there that night, and he'd left the property alive, driving away in his silver Ford Fiesta. None of them would explain why they had lied the first time they'd come looking for Jason. On September 22nd, the Ponderay County Sheriff's Office would get a call. Jason's car had been found wedged between trees just south of Libby, Montana, which is about a two and a half hour drive from Newport. On October 2nd, the Ponderay Sheriff's Office got a warrant to search 22 Jurgens Road. They would bring cadaver dogs with them. They weren't on the property long before they found a prescription bottle with Jason's name on it. They also recovered a pair of black Oakley sunglasses that were broken with missing lenses, the kind that Jason was known to wear. Cadaver dogs alerted on a boat parked on the property. Underneath it, there was fresh gravel, which reeked of diesel fuel, and there were very specific-looking tire tracks leading away from the site. They towed the boat away, then directed a backhoe to that spot. The operator would begin digging, first scooping out the gravel, then the dirt. But it wasn't long before a deputy was waving at the driver to stop. 
They saw what appeared to be a human elbow. From there, they carefully lifted Jason from the shallow grave. It was obvious that he'd been beaten. His wrists were tied behind his back. Here's Michael, Jason's father, and stepmother Susan, and Robbie, his brother. You know, we knew where Jason was immediately. You know, I mean, we knew we knew in our heart of hearts, you know. He was gone, and that's where he was. We knew it. We heard the same names over and over again. You know, there was a lot of outlandish stories associated with it. But everyone knew where they were going to find my son. It took them three weeks to get out there, you know, with the dog and find his body, which was by then so badly decomposed. We couldn't even view him. You know, I mean, we could, well, I mean, you know, we could have pushed it, but, you know, we, we've known the funeral director for years. He said, you know, guys, you really don't want this to be your last, you know, memory of him. He actually you know, told me it's so the we worst did that. thing he's ever seen. Yeah, yeah. He said it, worst thing he's ever seen. So, you know, three weeks to get our son back when we told them where he was from day one. And then they call us into the sheriff's office. Tell us what we think we found your son. I said, what the fuck does that mean? You think you found my son? They said, well, no, we're, we're, it's him kind of thing. But they actually made us wait. They found him Sunday. They made us wait until Wednesday to even tell anyone that he was dead. These fuckers wanted us walking around town pretending like everything is normal. You know, we don't know our son was found in a shallow grave and is lying on an autopsy table at the moment. So how are you going to tell a family is my question, the Newport Police Department. It's the worst thing I've ever heard because I get the phone call. I'm watching a football game. I get told to go downstairs. I go downstairs and they say, hey, they found your brother. But you can't tell anybody. So I can't fucking talk to anybody for, you know, three three full days until they want to release it. I mean, how do you do that to a family? How do you do that to anybody? That's That's just absolutely ridiculous and BS and just... Nothing like I've ever seen. Who told you that you couldn't tell anybody? Isn't it your right to do that? Why can't you tell anybody? Sheriff Blakesley and Mark Duxbury told us not to tell anybody. Why? I don't know. That's a good question. Well, did you ask? Did you say, hey, this is my son. I can do what I want. Or I mean, if you, you seem like the type of people that would say that. You know, but, but when you're hit with the yeah, fact that your son is dead. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it was it was very, you know. It it, it, it killed me. I I broke. Jason's cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head, and he'd been horribly beaten. Riley wasn't supposed to be there. Matt Matt and Riley set him up. You know, I mean, Matt lied to MCL, you know, all those people. They they knew what was going to happen, you know. So they set him up in that aspect. But, you know, I think a lot of it was he just probably thought he was going to go get high and hang out with his buddies. Why would they set him up? I just don't get that. Is that the million dollar question? It, it goes back yeah. to, I think they had taken advantage of him. They, you know, um, Riley's girlfriend had sold him bath salts and, you know, she had an Apple watch of his, and, you know, I mean, they had taken advantage and ripped him off and, you know, he's not the type of kid that when he gets ripped off, he was pissed. He was pissed about his Apple watch. I mean, if you go back and look at the messages, he says, I have my money. I want the actual fucking dope and I want my Apple watch back. And that's how that conversation went. And they said, well, I'm at this address. So then the next thing he texted Matt and said, Riley there, I don't want any drama. 
And they said, no, he's not there. Come through. And that's, you know, pretty much where it is. It's not word for word on the text. I'm not exactly right on that, but I'm right about the Apple Watch, about how he said that, because I remember yeah. that text. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. After the recovery of Jason's body at 22 Jurgens Road, it was a shock to the family when no arrests were made. Pepper would give investigators Jason's journal, where she tells them that inside he alludes to a sexual assault. Jason was raped. And he, he called me about it. And I told him, I said, get out of there. I said, go to the police right now. He told me he went to the police. He told uh, Jennifer about it. And in his journal um, that I handed to the sheriff, stupid of me, but I did, um, I talked about it in great detail he, about that night. He said, I need to get better friends. And he put down his name and, and his address and what happened and how he got, felt like he got drugged or something. And, and he woke up and, and he looked over and he saw pulling up his pants saying, don't worry, you liked it, you know, and, and, and all this stuff. And, and it, it, he wrote about it and it was everything that he said to me and Jennifer and the sheriff does not want to press charges um, on the, the rapist because um, there's, there's not enough proof, he said. According to a police report, Jason's journal entry regarding the alleged sexual assault read as follows, quote, I still really struggle with not knowing what happened that night that he and Matt were really inseparable until I started asking questions about that night. And I do truly feel something happened at that house. And Matt feels guilty. Like, why did he have pics of me in the man's bed? Why did he leave me there? Why did he deny all of it when called out in front of people? End quote. In the journal, Jason would also write about sobriety and how much he hated drugs. He would lament the stupid and arrogant things that he would say to the people that he loved. He writes that he hopes and prays that he can get in order before it's too late. And by the time Jason's body had been recovered, multiple witnesses had come forward about the mounting tensions between Jason and Riley and Matt over the summer of 2020. According to the Spokesman Review, in June, Jason would report to deputies that Matt had swung a pipe at his car during an argument. In late July, Jason would tell police that Riley and Matt had smashed his car windshield after he had taken a license plate off of Riley's car. Here, Pepper explains the relationship. This group of four were all friends. Jason was friends with three of them. Um, he was not friends with Riley. Riley was actually Jason's bully. Um, uh, there, there's uh, um, incidences that Jason talked to me about that I, I found proof in, in uh, on his iCloud that Riley was harassing him. Uh, I, I, I had five people from different statures come to me and say, hey, you know, I live in these apartments over here. And three days before uh, Jason went missing, uh, Riley pulled out his AR-15 in broad daylight and said he was going to kill Jason. On October 25th, Jason's family would hold a vigil where they would observe Riley pulling down their posters seen taking down the posters that you know, I that's that's search. pretty that's pretty ballsy considering like i mean you would think he would want to keep a low profile oh he it, it, got it, away it, with it he it, it gets even worse yeah they thought they got away with it they were walking into safeway you know buying bread and shit like everything's normal you know shopping with you know the decent folk you know and that just that sent me over the edge because you know everyone knew that these guys had killed him everyone in town knew you know well, who, when you say killed. everyone knew can you like how can you describe that from your perspective? How did you know that? If, I mean, I think I know in small town, like you're at the hardware store and somebody comes up to you and it's like, hey, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I heard this. Is that what it was like? 
everybody yeah. knew or yeah yeah so. pretty much you know i mean we were posting a lot on facebook and stuff trying to find out you know where our kid was and whatnot and yeah i mean you know we got just so many comments of you know riley did this and you know so on your I, facebook yeah. page oh yeah yeah and this was before he was even found we were getting you know yeah. people private messaging us and saying all this stuff you know i got i got texts two weeks after he went missing saying, these are the guys. And I send it to the Newport city police and get no response or nothing. That, that's why we went crazy and why we're in the media, why we did the vigil, why we did everything. I mean, it was also for the community and us to try and heal a little bit, but the main majority of it is try to put these guys in jail. And on that protest, when I actually got to walk up to Riley after that whole cop thing. And I said, you know, I, I can't wait till you're in jail. And he said, I didn't kill your brother. And then like smiled at me, like everything was fucking perfectly fine. Like I, How's he going to do that? You Riley, know? I, I, I actually heard Riley say Jason got what he deserved. Yeah. So tell me that's that not a guilty statement right there. You heard I, him say that? I heard that with my own ears. I heard him say Jason got exactly what he deserved. Yep, I was there. Robbie mentions that whole cop thing, and he's referring to when Riley showed up at their peaceful vigil in the city of Newport with an AR-15. Here's Pepper. He's running down the stairs, grabs his AR-15, pops the clip in it, and, and, and starts tracking and he sees me and we lock eyes. He, he has it up and he's ready to shoot me. I take my truck and go Whoa! right into the parking lot. I'm unarmed. I get out of the truck and I start walking up to him and I say, you better put that down for you hurt someone, Riley. And he's and like, he, oh, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I'm like, where's my kid, motherfucker? And I said, where is he? He's like, oh, I, I was trying to help him. I'm trying to help him. Yeah, I, I, I'm a good person. And I'm like, why are you so afraid, Riley? What is going on? And then and then that's when you'll see one of my videos where it shows Riley and me talking and he has his AR-15 AR out and and uh, he's all backing up between two vehicles, which one vehicle is Matt Radis Freeman's and the other one's his. And, and he's terrified because I'm not afraid of him. And it's like I was hoping that he was going to shoot me in the face because if, if I couldn't get him to get arrested for Jason's murder, that 80 women and children that were in this procession with me would, in broad daylight, witness him doing this. And Robbie, Jason's brother, witnessed this as well. Still didn't arrest him after he's holding a gun and pointing it. And then I ended up hitting yeah. my mom's car with my fist when the cop was talking because he's like, there's nothing we can do. We can't do this. We can't do this. And he's coming out waving his AR around like he's a big swinging dick of the town. I mean, I'm sorry I'm getting upset, but you know, he comes out and waves a gun around and acts like he's all that when really, you know, it, it, yeah. it, and their, their justification for not arresting him in the middle of town in downtown Newport, their justification for not arresting him for coming out in his little tactical gear with his automatic weapon was that he said he was fearful because two women and a gay kid pulled into the parking lot. That was their justification. And if I'm afraid of somebody, I'm not going out to the parking lot to confront them. Yeah, yeah. W wouldn't you call 911 if you were scared? I would. Michael says this was a very difficult time for the family. They were frustrated that no one had been arrested and that they weren't getting answers. But the investigation would take a turn on November 7th, a little over a month after they found Jason's body. The Ponderay Sheriff's Office would ask Riley to come in for a follow-up interview. He would show up wearing a ballistic vest, pepper spray, handcuffs, knives, an AR-15, and a handgun. During the interview, he wore sunglasses the entire time. 
When he was asked about the night that Jason had disappeared, at first, he claimed that he was in his vehicle the entire time Jason was over. But eventually, he would implicate Matt and CL as the two who had beat up Jason in the shop. He would describe CL hitting Jason twice. And then after that, he walked out saying this wasn't his fight. He said that Matt, CL, and Kevin were in the shop when he left. Riley claimed that he was out fixing a broken sewer pipe that was near the shop. But at some point, he admitted to driving a skid steer, which is an excavator on the property. Remember those tracks leading away from the boats where Jason's body had been found? Riley claimed he was working on a broken sewer pipe by the shop, but denied moving Jason's body. He would admit to transporting Jason's car to Montana with Matt. CL was interviewed next. Remember, CL was the one who invited Jason out to the property to hang out. The one who promised that Riley wouldn't be there. During his interview, CL would tell police that he'd been in the shop with Kevin and Jason when Matt and Riley joined them and began beating up Jason, hitting and kicking him. CL says that he tried to intervene, but that Riley threatened him and Kevin with his gun and told them not to say anything. He would say that he saw Matt leading Jason outside with his hands tied behind his back and that this was the last time that he saw Jason. That after that, he and Kevin sat in the shop and smoked weed as they heard the skid steer running outside. He claimed that he went back to Kevin's house at around 2 to 2.30 in the morning. CL said the next morning, Matt had told him that Jason was dead and that they had buried him. Investigators interviewed Kevin next. He held firm to the original story that he and CL had followed Jason off the property and that Jason had left alive. Matt was interviewed last, and he said that Riley and CL had beaten up Jason in the office as he was seated in a chair, that he watched Riley kick Jason in the face so hard that he sagged down and passed out. Eventually, Matt says that Jason regained consciousness and CL kneed him in the face at least twice. Matt claimed that Jason started insulting Riley and he told Jason to be quiet. That Matt was so distraught that he went upstairs to throw up and Riley went outside. Matt explained that after he finished throwing up, he went outside to smoke and he could hear the skid steer at the back of the property. He said that he observed CL walk out with Jason, who had his hands tied behind his back with a yellow ratchet strap, wrapped around Jason's wrists. Matt said that the last time that he saw Jason, that he was laying on the back of the Ranger, which is an off-road vehicle, and that they were leaving, heading out to the back of the property. Matt would admit that he helped Riley load Jason's car and transport it to Montana. After their interviews, Riley, CL, Kevin, and Matt were all arrested for murder in the first degree and kidnapping. Obviously, the family was relieved that they were arrested, but they were upset that the four men weren't charged with a hate crime. Pepper was convinced that her son was murdered because he was gay. According to a report in the Inlander, the Ponderé Sheriff would say that they had investigated Jason's journal, but that, quote, it does not provide a level of detail that would indicate Jason was sexually assaulted. However, they were looking into the rumor of a sexual assault as a potential motive. Pepper believes that Jason's murder had to do with his sexuality or that of his murderers. The Ponderay County Sheriff would also say that drug use was prevalent among Jason and those suspected in his murder, but that they don't definitively say whether drugs somehow led to his killing. For Jason's 20th birthday, Pepper would organize the first Pride event in Newport on April 3rd, 2021. And Robbie, Jason's brother, shared that even though he and Jason had gone through a rocky phase when they were younger, that they had overcome those growing pains together. When I was young, I, I didn't understand the gay thing, you know, and I found some stuff on his tablet. So for a couple of years, we were kind of shaky until 
you know, my dad kind of explained it to me and helped help me understand a little bit, I guess, about what it is. And, you know, so I, I started understanding and then, but never told me about anything in Newport or anything like that. I think he was trying to keep it down low because I knew he was using and I stuff like that. So I think he just, you know, but keep it private with himself. You, you'd made up with that. It was yeah. right. I mean, you feel, you feel good about that. This last two years was the best relationship we've ever had. You know, we were just like we were when we were kids antagonizing dad and Susan, you know, we were inseparable, you know, more or less calling all the time, texting, sending each other stupid stuff, you know, FaceTiming at, you know, two in the morning type thing on a Saturday, just a bullshit, you know, it was, it was a good relationship at the end. And, you know, that's something I get to live with, but you know, the last day he died, he said, Hey, I'll be up at your house in a couple days. I said, okay, perfect. And he wanted to come up to my house that day, but I said, Hey, you can't, I got to go buy a truck. And, you know, I bought my truck the, the day he was murdered. Pepper says her son had his entire life ahead of him. He was two weeks away from a, a scholarship paid um, nursing school. And, and he was finally going to be able to get out and see that life is wonderful and that it isn't it isn't what we grow up with you know in december of 2021 kevin belding would enter a plea agreement he pled guilty to rendering criminal assistance and failure to notify a coroner belding's attorney would argue that while he was at the jurgens property at the time of the murder he did not physically commit the murder or aid in the concealment of jason fox's body belding faced a year in prison for the rendering criminal assistance charge, and 90 days for the failure to notify charge. However, the judge said that Belding would be given credit for time served and that he'd already been in custody for over 14 months. He is now a free man. In February 2022, Claude Merritt, or CL as he was called, would be sentenced to 28 years in prison for the first-degree murder of Jason Fox and other charges related to the killing. C.L. would receive the high end of the sentencing range for Jason's murder and kidnapping charges, which is exactly what the family of Jason had asked for in their victim impact statements. Claude Merritt would speak for the first time in court to the judge before his sentence was handed down. He insisted that he was a friend to Jason. I tried to stop it, but then to have a rifle put in my face and say, if you don't sit down and shut the hell up, you'll be right next to him. How do you think that makes me feel, Your Honor? The judge wasn't impressed. I looked for some kind of spark, for lack of a better term, of, of humanity or decency, that you would recognize the, the, the people that bared their soul for you this morning. And I don't see it. All I have is anger. In June of 2022, Riley Hillstad would be found guilty of second-degree murder and was sentenced to 18 years. He would say that he was sorry about what happened to Jason, but that he wouldn't admit guilt. The trial for Matthew Raditz Freeman has not yet begun. As to a motive, it appears the suspects involved in Jason's murder continue to downplay what they did and place the blame on other people involved. Before I let you go, I wanted to remind you to listen to the bonus episode that's available right now. Here, my producer Brandon Morgan and I will discuss the case in more detail. And as always, thanks for listening. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.